The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everybody to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, Global Leaders in Fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of anesthesia. We go deep with Sydney-based anesthetist, Dr. Cameron Hunt. Cameron opens up about why he loves being an anesthetist and the mysteries and science behind anesthesia. Cameron answers many questions, such as, how does someone become an anesthetist? What is anesthesia? We go through a day in the life of an anesthetist, from IVF procedure, that is an egg collection, hysteroscopy, keyhole surgery, aka laparoscopy, cesarean section. What drugs does an anesthetist generally use? What drug killed Michael Jackson? How does sedation work? What is intubation? How does the green whistle work? Will I wake up from an anesthetic? Will I wake up during my procedure? Will I dream during my anesthetic? What are the chances of me dying from one? Are redheads more likely to wake up during anesthesia? What is anesthetic awareness? When you wake up from an anesthetic, what should you avoid? Nausea and vomiting. Why is it such a problem after anesthetic? How do we get rid of anesthetics? This and more, my friends. A little bit about Dr. Cameron Hunt. He is a graduate of the University of New South Wales and trained as a specialist anaesthetist in Sydney through Concord and Liverpool hospitals. That means he is now a fellow of the Australian and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists. He also trained in aeromedical retrieval work through CareFlight. He is now involved in private specialist practice, with most of his time being spent at Carina and St George private hospitals in southern Sydney. Dr. Hunt's clinical expertise centres around bariatric anaesthesia, that is weight loss anaesthesia, anaesthesia for urology, ear, nose and throat, orthopaedics, facio-maxillary and obstetric gynecological surgery. I hope you enjoy my chat with anaesthetist Dr. Cameron Hunt. Cameron Hunt, Dr. Cameron Hunt. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today. Dinesh, thank you very much for asking me. It's really great an honour. Yeah. Thank you also for making this long trip. <laughs> down, <laughs> down to Cronulla. Down to Cronulla. <laughs> I, um, I have a lot of questions for you today and, mm -hmm. and a lot of the questions that I will bring up are um, mm -hmm. courtesy of people that follow the Fanny Mechanic on social media. Mm -hmm. My first question to you, though, is generally anaesthesia, about anaesthesia, how you got into anaesthetics. Why did you mm. become an anaesthetist? Do we say anaesthetist or anaesthetist? Well, um, you'll find that uh, in, in Australia and the UK, it's anaesthetist. In the USA, it's anesthesiologist. But generally speaking, if you can get anywhere near it, you, you're fine. People will know what you're trying to say. Um, in fact, I used to joke that if you can pronounce it, you're you know, virtually halfway to becoming one. Um, how do you get to be one? Like all medical special specialties in, in, in Australia, you, you know, you, you enter a training scheme. So as I'm sure you did in, in, in your profession, you, you go through basic medical school, you be, do some basic ward years, those years um, as residents and so forth. But eventually you, you decide that this is for you and you enter a training scheme. Um, and the Australian and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists is, is our uh, college. It's our 
uh, club. It's got our rules and our clubhouse, and um, and it's a, it's a great college. It's a great organisation. It's really advanced anaesthesia uh, in this country and in other countries. So it's it's what you uh, join. I can remember the exact moment I decided that, that I might need to think about becoming an anaesthetist. Don't let me go on too long, but I remember being on the ward as a final year medical student at St Vincent's Hospital, and I knew that in a couple of months' time I was going to be on the other side, you know, a doctor. Mm. And I was spending time going around following the residents late at night just to sort of learn things. And to cut a long story short, they sent me up ahead to look at a patient who the nurses wanted reviewed. And instead of being something relatively simple, which we were with most of these things, it was a young lady. She was just out of an operation that day and she was in big trouble. She was what we now, I now know, mm. she was in post-operative shock. She right. was having complications. Mm. But back then I didn't know this and I realised how helpless I was. The next the progression of the event was a series of doctors came, the resident doctors come up and uh, it help escalates. But it wasn't until the anaesthetic registrar arrived. Everyone was like relieved. It was, oh, everything changed. <laughs> and this is probably an old man's memory, mm-hmm. but I'm sure she flew in. <laughs> there was a cape and, you know, she had had. It was a she. S. It was a she that it was. came to the she, rescue. She was Yay! a she. If she had a cape, I'm sure there was an S. <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, what, what I'm not, what I, sorry, what I am sure about is that she brought calmness, order and mythology to what is now a resuscitation. Mm. And I just remember the sense of absolute awe and the sense of relief that I personally got and everyone else got from her being there. And I thought to myself, oh, I think I'd like as a doctor to have that, um, be able to have that feeling. So when you become an anaesthetist, you obviously you're learning to give anaesthesia, but before you actually start doing anaesthesia, you have to learn peripheral skills such as resuscitation. You spend a lot of time in on the wards and in intensive care and in emergency departments, pardon me, and uh, and, and, and and so forth and those, those sorts of peripheral roles. And as you move into anaesthesia, you, you're continually learning new skills, but at the, at the core of it, um, having um, that sense of calmness, the ability to bring, to maintain calmness in, in a situation or bring calmness to a situation uh, was something I just personally felt I wanted to have as a doctor. Um, and I'm, I'm very glad I, to this day, you know, uh, that I, I still, largely speaking, can, can, can have that effect in a situation. Um, the deal you do when you become an anaesthetist is, you, you know, you're the anaesthetist, you're not the surgeon. You're not the one who has the primary relationship with the patient. You're just a brief part of their medical surgical experience. But I'm very happy with that payoff because I know that, you know, I'm not the surgeon and I'm not the one who's going to ultimately do the surgery and, and, and get them there, but get them get them through that surgical process but I'm the anesthetist I'll get them through I get them to the surgery <laughs> I get them through the surgery mm. and I personally get a lot of satisfaction out of that so that's why I became an anesthetist I think it was that that moment I really started looking at it and then keeping an eye on 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 various when you when when you go to theater as, as a young doctor you're just keeping an eye on how it's all looking and I kept on always looking up to the top end of the table where the, the anesthetist is and they always seem to be happy and calm and I just thought oh wow that that's just interesting 
the other thing I think you probably have to be as an anaesthetist is you have to have a real interest in, in more of the, the pharmacology and physiology side of things. So I had colleagues and, and friends who were, went through medical school with me who were much better at surgery anatomy and, uh, and, and that sort of side of things, and they became surgeons or radiologists or whatever. Um, whereas anaesthetists, we're, we're, we're sort of into the mechanics. We like to know how things work and why things work. So that's, that's the other side of it. Did um, you end up uh, ever connecting with that, that superhero anaesthetist that came in that day? I, I did To thank her I mean, for, for the inspiration? <laughs> no, no, I never, I never really did that. I, I didn't. I, 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 I actually probably couldn't even tell you her name these yeah. days. <laughs> but um, I'm sure she knows who's you. <laughs> so, Cameron, mm. how does an anaesthetic work? That's a big question. It's a big it? question. Um, what we probably need to just work out what an anaesthetic is um, and then we maybe think about what it isn't. So an it's a Greek word, isn't it? An- anesthesia, the, the, the origin of the word, yes, mm. comes from without sensation. Mm. Um, the, the re- a reasonable sort of working description of, of it is that it's a, it's a drug-induced state of reversible lack of awareness or loss of consciousness and reflex suppression or stillness. So it's a state which is controlled, drug-induced. It has to go away. That's the reversible bit. And you've got to have sort of three, two, three main things. You've got to have unconsciousness. You can't be aware of what's going on. And linked with that, there's, there's memory. You, you don't want to be able to remember mm. what's going on. And at the same time, you need to be still. Um, we, we, we need to just use reflex suppression, meaning not just physically still, but um, those reflexes, which means that your body wants to just automatically move away from pain or, or bad, something bad. We, they have to be suppressed too because you know, you're a surgeon. You can't possibly do what you need to do, if, if, even if your patient's anesthetized, but if they're moving too much. So that's a pretty simple but hopefully working definition of what it is. How does it work? I think we've really got to almost start breaking down the components. Um, we, were talk- we were talking about how to apply it to a day's work. Should we, should we talk about that now? I think it might help. Yeah, so let's do it. Imagine, okay. can, oh, after you, gonna t- <laughs> tell me about the day's work you've got lined <laughs> okay. up for me. So, Cameron, today uh, we're going to do an IVF procedure in the morning, mm-hmm. so an egg collection. And then I've got lined up a hysteroscopy, a DNC, mm-hmm. then uh, somebody's doing a laparoscopy, and then I think there might be an elective caesarean section, mm. uh, preferably with an epidural. Uh, so that's the day for you lined up. Okay, Let's start boss. with the right. IVF procedure. Well, I, I, of course, go and have a chat with, with the lady having the IVF procedure, and we need to work out how healthy they are and if they have any other medical conditions. We, we need to get a background history. But I'm also going to just ask the lady if she has any questions and not uncommon to be asked what I'm going to do. So to the point of this podcast, I think people probably actually really want to get behind the scenes, don't they? So what the, the lady will experience is she'll, she'll come into the operating theatre and I'm going to place a little little needle device, a little cannula, into a large vein, probably in the elbow or up in upper forearm, and I'm going to start, in my practice for this procedure, what I would do is I'd give a, an anaesthetic with three drugs here. Mm-hmm. And what I'm doing 
is using a technique which is termed balanced anesthesia. So I'm using a combination of drugs to get my desired effect whilst limiting, trying to limit the problems each drug brings mm. to the anesthetic. And, and this is not how things used to be done in the past, but it's generally how things are done now. So our lady here, she's got the little dripping. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give uh, a small dose of, of midazolam. So it's a benzodiazepine. And it's it's jokingly called the champagne or the co- cocktail, the gin and tonic. That's a lot the of, champagne. Lot, that's the one. The la- okay. but most people love it. They, mm. I'm using it because it's it, it, it's an anti-anxiety, anxiolytic. Another Greek word. Yeah, another Greek word. <laughs> Everything's Greek. <laughs> <laughs> um, it 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 therefore produces a you know that sense of relaxation. It, it can produce a, a mild sedation effect in itself. Whilst this is going on the anaesthetic nurse and myself are going to be applying some monitoring and that's all standard of care. That's that, that thing which goes on your finger, the thing which goes around your arm and the little dots measuring the electrical activity of the heart. That would be very, very normal standard of care. Can I ask here, yeah, um, the yeah. thing on the finger, mm-hmm. um, does it does it matter if a woman's wearing shellac, nail polish or right. fake nails? Very common. What happens um, there? If, if there's... Uh, a barrier to the passage of light, it will affect it. But all you have to do is turn it sideways, really, and you can usually get around that. Okay. Um, traditionally, it was advised to take off off the, the nail polish or shellac, but honestly, I, I just turn the thing sideways. Okay. It's usually not a problem. That's a good tip. Yeah, um, easy. Um, and frankly, most people, most places, institutions will also have one which will go on your earlobe. Mm. Um, so yeah. I don't I don't personally tell people to take off the shellac okay. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's that, like yeah. telling people to take no, off no. their f- f- not, uh, eyelashes. That's very common now, isn't it? I get more calls about the shellac and things like eyelashes and things like nose rings and tongue rings than just about anything else. Mm. Um, <laughs> what um, are we talking about? Oh, that's right. So, yeah, the patient's um, – Dazzlam. Yeah, had them a Dazzlam. I'd put a, a simple little oxygen mask on the face mm-hmm. and then I would start to give two more drugs. One of them's propofol. Michael Jackson drug. Yes, indeed. That's the culprit. Um, poor Michael. Uh, that, I mean, that's just so bizarre. That's mm. really not medicine. Um, mm. What I would also give is some short acting uh, narcotic or, or, or um, opioid. And I, I personally would use one called alfentanyl, but others would use fentanyl. And people shouldn't get worried about the differences. It's more important to focus on the, on the, the similarities. So we talked about what midazolam is bringing to the party, so it's made this lady calm, but she's not by any means anesthetized at this stage. And what I'm going to do is use the propofol to induce anesthesia. So it is a fast-acting, short-duration uh, anesthetic agent which induces Unconsciousness. Right. It, as, as like the benzo, like the midazolam, it's going to give me no pain relief. So that's why I'm going to use a bit of the fentanyl, or our fentanyl, pardon me. It's going to produce, uh, assist in the production of that reflex suppression, that lack of movement we're talking about. Now, I'm going to introduce another concept here, which was... With the subsequent operations, we might discuss, I'm actually going to use more or less the same drugs. Mm. 
So how can that be? How can so you use nice the same drugs? There's a recipe you've got going there. Oh, recipes. There's so yeah. much recipe in anesthesia. Yeah, right. So how can you use the same drugs for different procedures? Well, this is the thing. Um, I think we got a question too about how does sedation work, remember? Um, yeah. How does it work? What we're, we're talking about is a spectrum. Mm. So as you increase the dr- dose that you've given of, of these drugs, you move a patient along an anaesthetic spectrum. Um, now, classically, we talked about stages, the stages of anaesthesia, and they are divided up into four, and the, the first three are really relevant. So th- th- these were described um, back in the 30s, I think it was, when, when largely uh, an anaesthetics were being given via uh, quite reasonably slow-acting gases. So you, anaesthetists would, would observe over minutes people moving through this progression. But by giving these, these intravenous agents relatively slowly, you can still see a progression. So the first stage traditionally has been called um, analgesia, or, um, but we might also think of it as sedation. The second stage is actually an excitement stage uh, when you actually observe an increase in some of the some, some things such as um, patients' tendency to, to swallow or cough or have little uh, throat noises. Um, breathing might become faster and irregular and so forth. Then you enter this third stage, which is anesthesia. And it and as and as you as you progress you can you can get to a final stage which, which traditionally has been overdosed, but really it's just too much. Um, so back to our, our lady having our IVF procedure, I'm I'm thinking that she needs a moderate amount of anesthesia. She needs to be anesthetized. So I need to get her through sedation. She wants to not go at something knowing gone. So she have to get her through stage one. I have to get her through stage two because that's not a safe. No. Uh, you do have to trust me in this. This is not somewhere you want to be. So I have to go through. Now, the good thing about these, these intravenous agents is they work pretty fast. So I can give an uh, initial dose, which gets me from one to two into three pretty fast. And what I'm going to do is just sit there the next 5, 10, 15 minutes as this anaesthetic takes place uh, and just manually give probably some propofol boluses whilst I'm probably going to have to hold the airway because I've uh, I, it might very well be needed. Um, and I'm just going to keep the patient breathing spontaneously, uh, anaesthetised. I'm going to be looking for the signs that they're neither becoming too far along stage three, getting too deep, and nor entering, falling back into stage two, starting to wake up. It's not, um, it's actually not that hard to do, but it's, as we'll see when we talk, talk about some of the, the later cases, I suspect, it, this, this, this technique and I think stepping back for a sec, one of the things you have to do as an anesthetist is you have to marry mm. your technique to your surgery mm. to your patient. Mm. Sorry, obviously probably to technique, the, patient, to the surgery. Procedure, yeah. yeah, in this situation with this patient who's reasonably calm and this surgery which is reasonably short and reasonably uh, simple, this technique is, is good. So this technique would be perfectly uh, uh, routinely done for all sorts of procedures. This would be a very standard technique for all the endoscopies, for maybe eye procedures, for hand procedures, for our IVF procedures. 
Can I ask, yeah. is this a general anesthetic? When you're giving yes. a patient, a, a, you know, this concoction yes. for an IVF procedure, mm-hmm. it is fair to say it is a general anesthetic. Yes. Because yes. a lot of patients think general anesthetic, oh, tube down the throat. Okay. And I say yep. you you have an anesthetic, but you're not going to generally be intubated, but some mm-hmm. anesthetists choose to do it, and I suppose it depends on the patient and the procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, conscious sedation. Ah, great, great. I'm glad you asked this question. Yeah, tell yeah. us so more about that. We, we need to define this perhaps. So. Mm. The, the college has actually done a lot of work recently in this because some um, of our colleagues in, in other professions use sedation and we need to basically have sort of standard rules for it. So there are really two types of sedation. There's conscious sedation and unconscious sedation. So they'd both be in that first uh, stage I've talked about. So the, okay. firstly you get through conscious. That, that's literally, as, as the name implies, you've given perhaps that midazolam I talked about. Right, yep. Patients got some angiolysis, they're calm, but mm-hmm. they're conscious. Yep. And they are able to talk to you mm-hmm. and obey help commands, they'll move if you need, and they'll look after their own breathing anyway. Okay, right. Unconscious sedation, so perhaps um, I've given a small amount of propofol or even, even more of the midazolam and they've, yeah. patients have moved along that spectrum. Yep. So they are unconscious. Mm. But they're probably rousable. So if, 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 you, if you shook their shoulder hard or... Um, actually started a minor surgical procedure, they'd rouse and they wouldn't be happy. They, they, they might wriggle and move and so forth. That's conscious sedation. Um, and then anesthesia is a definition I gave before, but it's beyond that. So, mm. so it's, it's, they can't rouse. Mm. And you have to support their airway? Airway. Um, as soon as you're supporting it, it, an airway, is that, is that, is that anesthesia? Uh, well, if part of... And an anesthetist basic um, mandate is, is, is airway maintenance, airway yes. support. But yeah. what you can see in, in that, in, in, when you're talking about unconscious sedation, you can actually start to see people who will, who'll need airway support there. Mm. Um, so I just would hate to pe- hate for people to think, oh, I'm only going to give this drug, it should only be conscious sedation, therefore I don't have to worry about airway. That's where people can get into trouble pretty mm. fast. Oh, you know, poor old Michael Jackson, Lord mm. knows what happens there. But mm. uh, there are other examples around you, you here where yeah. where conscious sedation type procedures have, have have had complications of loss of airway. So certainly if you're going into general anesthesia, then monitoring the airway and maintaining it is important. So if it's not um, a simple little airway device, we might very well intubate or so forth, depending on the situation. There are actually times where you actually do give a general anesthetic without an airway. Um, okay. They're, they're unusual, but, I mean, you can think about um, – Okay. There, are, there are some unusual situations. We probably shouldn't get lost in that. How about, how about <laughs> the, the green whistle? That's another another uh, uh, tool that uh, doctors use to yeah. make a patient comfortable for an IVF procedure. Can you tell us more about the green whistle, the penthrox okay. device? Yeah, let's divert for a sec. The green whistle, penthrox, mm. is methoxyfluorane. Okay. So methoxyfluorane is a volatile anaesthetic. Uh, and it, it was used as a general anaesthetic agent uh, I think up until, gosh, it might have been the sort of 70s, 80s, I, before my time, but it was it was removed because of some side effects, some problems. The thing about it, though, is that one of its properties is that at sub-hypnotic doses and low doses, it gives you intense analgesia, great mm. analgesia. Mm. How good? Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time I saw this one being used was Bondi Rescue. Oh, you watch those guys on the on the you know, pulling uh, yeah. people coming out of the surf with, yep. with dislocated shoulders and so forth. Yeah, uh, and 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 since then it's 
I'm, I'm being a bit facetious, but you do see it. Um, particularly, it's been it, it, it's on it, its use has been uh, taken up. I think by the ambulance services and first responders a lot. Um, we have started to see it in our medical world, haven't we? Because some of our colleagues in are using it for exactly what we're talking about, this IVF procedure. I've, I've been using it yeah. for many years for IUD insertions in yeah. my rooms and it, it works yeah. beautifully. It does, yeah. It really does, yeah. So an IUD insertion, I'm, I'm right thinking, you know, min, it, 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 little bit, it's a little bit painful. It, it's, but, oh, it can definitely be painful, yeah. 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 Uh, but um, in the spectrum of things, it's not it's not an operation type pain. No, right. but it can be very uncomfortable yep. for women and at the end of the day you want to make yeah. someone as comfortable as possible mm -hmm. and um, that and a bit of an aesthetic gel, misoprostol mm -hmm. combined and a bit of music, of mm -hmm. course, mm -hmm. um, really helps. But yeah. I, I, I've been impressed by the yeah. green whistle. But I love using anaesthetist too for my egg collections. Oh, and thank you. The great thing about the green whistle is exactly mm. what um, you said. It, it, it works. Mm. And all you have to do is, as you know, you, you load this thing up with a little liquid and the patient has to breathe through it. Mm. And that's all. There's nothing technical. There's no battery. Mm. It's nothing. Mm. It's very simple and it works. Mm. Strong smell too. A strong smell. The, that's the, but the, you've also got its great disadvantage. It's limited. Mm. So the dose is limited by what's in the device and – you can just modify that a bit by covering a whole other thing, but the major point is you it's really designed so that you, you shouldn't be able to progress and stay into those deeper stages of anesthesia. So if you're, if you're starting a procedure where you think you could get away with under the green whistle but then things aren't going well and, and the patient's going to need more anesthetic or a longer anesthetic, then the green, green whistle stops being a good option. So the green whistle just is – what is that only for stage one, would you say? Yeah, yeah. It's really designed for a, a, yeah. analgesia is, yeah. is the main thing it, it's yeah. bringing. And because it, it, it also definitely produces some mm. um, calming. You can see it mm. in patients and uh, I've, I've seen that and when yeah. I've, I've been involved with its use. Um, yeah, I've had some patients say it was, it, was, it was better than weed for making them nice and chilled. Yeah, but you don't get any memory loss is what I've seen. Most people can able to recall, mm. so that's okay if, if that's okay. Look, I think it's something which you'll probably see more of for, for uh, short procedures, mm. small procedures, painful procedures. The, you don't – I know I've spoken to emergency physician colleagues about it because um, they – uh, using it, but the thing that they told me was that you don't get patient cooperation. Um, maybe you could. Would, with is that right? Whistle? Yeah, you can't. If you want, you want someone still and allowing you to do your procedure. But if you've got to do something where you need them to talk to you as you're doing it or respond to your examination, just what they're after in emergency. They they, they, mm. they don't favor it as much there. I suppose it depends on what the situation is. I mean, mm. with an IUD, it's an elective procedure. They're coming in knowing they're having it done mm -hmm. as opposed to maybe someone who's in emergency who's had mm. some traumatic event. Yeah. Maybe that maybe that's where it's a little different. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we talk, did you want to bring up anything else about IVF-related well, anesthesia I mean, before I asked your first question from the dietologist? Uh, no, well, just, just I guess that, that basis, that, that anesthetic um, – I, I think one thing that does come up in questions I get is the "Will I wake up?" question. So, how do the how do how does this lady wake up from this anaesthetic? And this is the most magical thing about these drugs, and one of the reasons that they are used is because they go away by themselves. Mm. So, particularly the propofol uh, in this case, it it will it will all I have to do is stop giving it. I don't have to give a drug to make it go away. Nothing. 
patient doesn't have to do anything to make it go away. Its, um, it's properties and the way it's, it moves through the body means that it will simply move out of the brain in of itself and the patient will wake up. The, 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 the other two drugs I mentioned too will, will to some extent do that too, but there's also metabolism happening. Um, yeah, that takes yeah. me to a question that I had before, right. before the dietologist question was, um, mm-hmm. I read that women, overweight people, redheads, drug abusers, mm. and kids are more likely to wake up during surgery mm. and that some people have a genetic predisposition to awareness. I suppose mm. maybe we could talk about that you know, in depth later, but mm. genetic... Genetics plays a role in how we metabolize drugs. Definitely does. So um, do you find that some people wake up quicker than others from this procedure, from these procedures because of their genetics or yeah, yeah. body makeup? You do, you do, but it's hard to know why. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it so much depends on so many factors, uh, the nature of the surgery, the nature of the person, how anxious they were. It does affect on their, on, on their body um, composition. Uh, and the drugs you've given, um, how vigorous their circuitry system is. Metabolism is definitely um, um, something which affects how the drugs are finally removed from the body. But particularly with the propofol, um, it's initial. the initial reason that people uh, emerge from the anaesthetic has actually got to do with it moving uh, from uh, the, the brain compartments in, into other compartments. So the bottom line is on the on the, on the to answer your question, it's very hard to know, um, and you don't have a genetic test, mm. for instance. There's no blood mm. test to say, how are you going to go with this? Mm. Um, the other things you mentioned are, are fascinating, um, and we we'll probably will talk to it later because whenever you talk about anaesthetics, you, you start talking about awareness sooner or later. So yeah. we're going to get there, aren't we? But the, was it, um, you said the, uh, women, that's true. Yeah. Women, redheads? Uh, how about redheads? It's true. Um, mm. It's one of those things which you get told uh, and, and you think, oh, is that a bit of a, bit of a tale? But, no, it's been um, – it's been demonstrated, and I seem to recall around about twenty percent was the sort of the number that yeah. suggested in- increased requirement. And, and they have yeah, they have more pain. Well, it's off, a, yeah, that's exactly pain, right. Don't they? I've it noticed is. that with my patients. Absolutely, and yeah. even I haven't got. I don't know if this one's true, but people mm. always say more bleeding. Mm. Um, so what I was told is that this is a spinal cord thing. Um, a lot of anaesthetic actions at spinal cord spinal cord level. Uh, and apparently you're a redhead because of a genetic difference in some melanin, melanocortin, I think, melanin-type proteins. And apparently they're also one of the many targets of anaesthetic drugs. Oh. So there might be – so he, so you're asking about genetics. This could be a perfect example of where we're starting to get an insight that genetics are truly relevant mm. um, more than more than we – possibly appreciate as a clinical anesthetist i don't with respect to these general anesthetic drugs i don't sort of think to myself about genetics i mean we there are there are some caveats to this and some some exceptions and i'll probably get there in a second but um yeah i i'm more into i mean I'm, i am interested in past your past history of how, how your anesthetic goes and, and, if, and if your mum and dad there or you want to tell me about your family history i'm very interested in that too but it's not like i can really mm. i'm not I'm, uh, there are other things which are going to affect my anesthetic Delivery for you more than that, if you know what I mean. It's very much dependent on the anaesthetist, isn't it? There's an enormous art to it. <laughs> yes. So when you when you're learning, you're learning. You start learning the science, and as you're observing and practicing, you're learning an art. And in the end, you've got to bring the two together. Mm. I love that about it's alchemy. Ah, uh, 
I hope, isn't that when you're trying to turn lead into gold? No, it's definitely not that. It's anti-alchemy, trusting people. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that was um, the wrong word to look, use. <laughs> I just wanted to mention, because yeah. I, I know there's some people out there who'll be saying, what about, there, there is one particular area where we know genetics are really important mm. and it's coding. So oh, yes. We, I think we talked about this, didn't we? Yes. I've done I, my genetic you, test you, I, I looked, when you said that, I looked it up and I've, I've seen their, their, uh, they're, they're available, but yeah. I, I must admit I've never sent a patient. Pharmacogenomics. Yeah. Can you? How did you go with that? It was just a single blood test, and they gave you. It a, was a, a mouth swab, mouth a buccal swab. swab. And I went to the local chemist yeah. and had that done. It was about three years ago now. Yep. And uh, I, yeah, there's a lot of drugs that I, my body can't metabolize very yeah. well, and yeah. it was interesting to see. And I thought what I thought was most interesting about it was not just the pain relief side of things, yep. but if I ever needed to go on to an antidepressant, for mm. example. Mm. There'd be some drugs that I should definitely not take, and others that maybe I should. Mm, mm. But I really think that people people should look at doing this testing more often. I couldn't agree more. I, mm. I think it's going to. Mm. I can't see why it hasn't taken off more than. Yeah, it, I don't it understand has. it either. Yeah, I really don't. Yeah, because I'm faced on an almost daily basis with this question of what pain relief to give, mm. and if you can tell me that you're with respect to codeine. So the story here is that it, it's it's been around forever, a long time, and but recently. There's been a lot of concern, and it's always been a concern about. There's always been there's increasing concern, and not a few years ago there was an, actually a significant attempt to remove it from um, our our armamentarium. It's not been removed; it's still an available from the anesthetist uh, from from jet, from prescribing. Oh, oh, right. The reason is it's it's, it's pharmacogenetics. Yeah. Are so important. So your your ability to get actual pain relief from taking. Codeine is genetically determined. Mm. You need to convert it. So some people do. Some people do it really fast and they get a super effect and can get overdose. Some people don't do it. They just get side effects and no benefit. Yes. So <laughs> that was maybe the tramadol. Yeah, exactly. It's probably the same. Many others. <laughs> so the people I went to uh, talk and the the, the 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 consensus was that if you try to introduce codeine in as a new drug in 2020. They'd laugh at you. It would, oh, you wow! It's not you can't bring in this. It's it's I'm too unpredictable, doc. So um, that's a perfect example. So um, I, I, what I do is I actually speak to especially every patient. Say, look, have you had codeine? How did you go? Mm. If you if you can tell me you love it, works great, fine. Mm. You, I know genetically you're probably right. that group. But if oh no, that one, I, it always makes me sick and mm. it gives me no benefit. Well, then tells I you think a lot, doesn't that, it? It does. Um. Yeah, it does. So that's that's one one area I think we probably um, uh, I could, could improve in. I, I mean, you want have you done your testing yet? No, not yet. Oh, it's going to no. start with you, Doc. Oh, well, guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I try and avoid surgery. Trust me. <laughs> I have a question from the dietologist. Yeah. I think you've answered half. Well, you've answered how does sedation work? Okay. Uh, what's the chances of waking up from an anaesthetic, and why? She asks. Oh, it's such a complicated question. Um, Maybe it's, I suppose it's okay to say we don't know why. Oh. <laughs> Do you know why? Because there's lots of things we don't know in medicine, especially anaesthetics, I think. I think what we need to do is we need to talk about a second patient. So imagine we, we've got our second patient who's having the, the hysteroscopy. Okay, hysteroscopy. So, yeah, which is everyone for the listeners is when we look inside the uterus mm, with the camera. And we often do this mm, in women when there's heavy bleeding, there's a fibroid, mm, there's a polyp, or we're trying to investigate infertility. So mm, uh, patients are always under a general anaesthetic. Well, actually, not always. There you go. For, that's, yeah. a, that's a good point. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes in, in places like uh, I think in America they use, um, yeah, what unconscious sedation in an outpatient setting to do a hysteroscopy. Mm. 
And I, I um, unconscious sedation. So they're unconscious. Yeah. Well, um, perhaps with some local anaesthetic and mm, yeah, that's um, what they do. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. So um, going back, so we well, so so I'm going to I'm going to make it easy, and and, and we're going to build on the, the the example of our first case. So mm-hmm. this lady is basically having similar sort of surgery, but it's more. Yeah, it's more, it's more, it's longer, and it's going to be more stimulating. So I'm going to basically give the same drugs, maybe some more of the pain reliever drugs, but I'm going to keep the anaesthetic going, uh, either, and we'll probably get into this later, but either with an infusion of that propofol drug I mentioned, or I'm going to turn on the volatile anaesthetic agent. So I'm going to give the anaesthetic gas. Mm-hmm. So how do the anaesthetic gases work? That's the one you want me to get to because that's the one I'm going to say we're not sure. Ah. <laughs> so the, I can we can talk about how that midazolam and the fentanyl and the propofol work. We, we have some pretty good ideas um, really true ideas of, of how they work at a molecular level. So when we talk about how drugs work, we're really talking about how the molecule of drug acts with the receptor or the person. With the volatiles, they are still really the subject of theories. There are some two or three really strong theories. And if you'd asked me 20 years ago when I was looking at the textbooks in that it was really you, you just talk about the theories these days i'm i think it's fair to say that we 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 believe that the molecules of the volatile anesthetics they they interact with proteins uh, channels in the cell membranes of nerve cells we know that and it's unlike other drugs like we we've been talking about with the the, the first ones or we might just think about with Panadol, whatever, where you know that it has a specific action against the receptor. These drugs have a uh, a more complex and and and, and, and uh, they they affect the state of the protein. If I'm using um, one of those volatile anaesthetics for this this, this lady having hysteroscopy, um, she, she's gone to sleep and she's anesthetized because of the the, the, inter- the doses of the intravenous agents, and then. I'd maintain an airway with her, probably with a, with a, a little device in the back of the throat, and um, and and we'd use this volatile anaesthetic. And the same the same thing happens. Uh, how does it? How do you wake up? And so you turn it off, and the patient breathes it out. Um, there's there's some metabolism, but more or less they, they breathe it out, and they it mm. goes away, and they wake up. That's that's the reversibility. That's great. So, um. You can start to see though that there's a bit of complexity coming to this, and if we want to talk about awareness we talk about the third case so imagine our lady having the laparoscopy which is keyhole surgery to she's everyone listening. keyhole surgery so yep. the big difference here is that i'm going to give all of the drugs i mentioned before but she's also going to get a muscle relaxant mm. so what is a muscle relaxant she's going to be paralyzed she's going to be paralyzed mm. so why would i do that Couple I don't of reasons. want her moving Couple when I'm doing her procedure well, that's it the major one is is that the laparoscopy needs um, keyholes and in, into the tummy through the abdomen. You need to be able to re- have relaxed abdominal wall so that the, the carbon dioxide gas, which is used to blow up the, not 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 blow up, but, you know, inflate the abdomen, um, can, can can work against less pressure, and that allows our surgeons to to see and move their instruments around clearly. But also um, because the patient's paralysed, I have to breathe for them. So, 
basic one. Basic the diaphragm's part, a muscle and a yeah, diaphragm right. can't move. Exactly. Mm. Sorry, thank you. So this is where I, I'd almost certainly use that breathing tube people think about. So that's that's a, an, an endotracheal tube mm. and the process is called intubation. So, so sorry, let's go back to the beginning. So, so when I, you use the LMA, you're yep. not intubating someone? Um that's not a form of intubation. Re- I think I think it's a bit of semantics, but mm-hmm. most people would use intubation refer to refer right. to the passage of the right, I've affinity the airway, yeah. a tube, a tube past the vocal cords. Right. Yep. So a laryngeal mask is 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 what the airway device you mentioned. That's what I would use for our, our second lady, the right. hysteroscopy and lady, and that kind of just sits who, in the mouth. Yeah, past the back of the tongue, but above the vocal cords. Yeah. So be- beneath the vocal no, cords above, is, above. is the actual yeah. oh, intubation. Sorry. Yes, beneath. Yep. So, and yep. an intubation is is when the patient's had our our, our sleep drugs, our induction drugs. The midaz, the fentanyl, the propofol, and a muscle relaxant, and that muscle relaxant's had time to work. Then we we put a, a torch device in the mouth and pass this plastic tube, effectively pass the vocal cords into the trachea, and that allows us to to basically ventilate. So this is this is ventilation. I think it's become quite um, topical. I mean, we're in, mm. we're in uh, June two thousand twenty, and yes. there's a lot of talk about ventilators. Yes. <laughs> so that that's. Um, more or less um, what people are doing, they're being intubated and ventilated uh, for the, the COVID thing. Mm. Paralyzed. So mm. awareness is um, a major, major um, topic. So the thing is, the, these muscles, so if you go back in time, back in the, in the 30s, from about 18, 1800s, 18, 1850s, 1840s, 1850s to the 30s, you really didn't use muscle accents much. To, to, to keep a patient um, satisfactorily anesthetized for the surgeon who's having, say, a, 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 an open abdominal operation, a laparotomy, so maybe you might think of like an, a, an appendix. Or a caesarean section. Or section. a caesarean section under yep. general anesthetic. Yeah, yep. absolutely. The, the anesthetist used volatile uh, agent sensor gases, uh, frequently uh, ones we don't have today, but, but they're, they're the forerunners of what we have today. And they were able to... Very, they were incredibly skillful people. They, they were uh, able to uh, provide that anaesthetic state and they would use, um, they'd move along that spectrum to quite a deeper level. So you get the abdominal relaxation this this our patient needs back in the, the 30s for this operation. They, they'd have the patient at quite a deep level. They'd move along that spectrum in, in, well, well into the, the later parts of that stage three. Um and back, if you look at back at the, the back at the '30s, and you speak to your, your grandparents, um, the biggest concern of people back then was not being aware, not getting enough. It was getting too much. Mm. Uh, it was overdose. It was it was it was very very much more risky inter, uh, undertaking anaesthesia and surgery uh, in our grandparents' time. Uh, about a hundred times more so. So mm. it really was a big deal, and, and, and a lot of people would. Um, Thanks to the, the surgery and, and their other conditions and the, the heavy amounts of anaesthetics, that you know there was a, a significant um, mortality rate. So in the in the oh, I think it's fifties and sixties, um, these drugs called muscle relaxants were introduced, and they do basically one thing and one thing only: when you administer them intravenously, they paralyze your movement muscles, your skeletal muscles. So. All, all of your arm, leg, everything, everything which every muscle which you allows you to move a bit of your body voluntarily, uh, as as well as the diaphragm, your breathing muscle, and that's all they do. They don't give you any pain relief. They don't give you any sedation. They don't give you any anaesthesia. So, as long as you've got 
the anesthesia covered already with the other drugs, they're fine. But the problem begins when the problem is especially uh, acute, I should say, when you've got the situation where adequate anesthesia is not present, but muscle relaxation is. So, and that's the awareness. This this is awareness. So, mm. awareness is 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 variously defined, but it, I think we can practically say it's that it's that it's that experience of knowing what's knowing something under anesthesia, and it can be uh, explicit memory. So that is where someone could say, I remember these sensations and I remember this conversation. That would be you know, unquestionable. And then, but it can also be more vague. It can be what we call implicit. You can have implicit memory, which is basically a sense or a, a vagueness or a concern about, about it. So it becomes very, very complex very quickly. Back in when I was certainly first looking at this, this is late 80s, early 90s, I think I would probably have been guilty of thinking, oh, it really isn't very common, um, but we don't really know because you sort of look at the literature and you'd see various reports. Some would say it's one in a couple hundred thousand, but then you get these other surveys of patients and it would be one in, oh, a couple of thousand. And you think, oh, okay, this is it's a bit weird. Particularly interesting side note, <laughs> sorry, said going, there's a technique you can use where you actually have the patient anesthetized, but you actually don't let anesthetic get into their arm. So you have mm. the arm circulation cut off. And then you can ask the patient to move their finger. That was described in this book, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, it is. It comes up in a few times. Yeah, yeah. so we're, we're talking called, about, folks, a book called um, Anesthesia, and it's written by Kate Cole Adams, mm. The Gift of Oblivion, The Mystery of Consciousness, and mm. she talks about this. So, yeah, it's yeah. an isolated forearm technique. Mm. Um, and there are studies where it's been demonstrated that you, you can, under a light but supposed adequate general anaesthetic, you can actually get a really significant number of people will, if in response to a verbal suggestion, please move your hand, they'll wriggle their fingers. In the middle of an operation. Well, these are usually done study, but yeah, yeah, look, these are usually study um, events, but yes, in the middle of operation too. The thing is though, if you go back and speak to, you go back and speak to those patients, not all, in fact, most of them, as I understand it, don't actually remember it. Mm. So it's getting complex. One of the um, one of the analogies I'm, I'm I'm terribly guilty of using when I, particularly talking with a frightened teenager. So the the frightened teenager. Well, we have to talk about kids. We uh, can't forget well, about what kids say. Okay. Well, yeah. I'll probably get back to the analogy then. But yeah. more or less, I'm talking about um, various um, ways of trying to explain it, and I. Th- I mentioned that a lot of the, the anaesthetic action possibly is at the spinal cord. So what po- possibly was the suggestion of what we're starting to see is that we might have some reflex suppression. We're, we're giving enough analgesia and enough anesthesia so that there's, there's some degree of there's unconsciousness. But the auditory um, part of the brain, which is hearing you, and and the ability to respond to that is not completely anesthetized. It's it, it, so it's, it's the last thing to go, isn't it? I read it, in that it, book. It is the suggestion. Yeah, mm, that's right. Mm. That hearing is the last sense to go. So mm. when um, so you've got to be careful as a surgeon what you say in oh, the operating theatre. So true. Or the anesthetist, I mean, or even even the the porter and 
and and this is what this book. Sorry to interrupt, no, no. but um, this is what this book has really highlighted to me that um, you really need to be careful as to what you're saying uh, in that operating theatre and focus on the fabulous and say maybe mm. only good things because mm. pe- people do hear what you're saying, can mm. hear what you're saying, and that might stay with them forever. Yeah. Can you can you talk more on that? Oh, look, it's, it's absolutely true. Um, it's something we in ISIS are, are very mindful of. I, I, I generally find, to tell you the truth, most people are incredibly respectful. I know, do people, I do think, sort of wonder and what worry about what goes on when they're, when they're anesthetised, but there isn't generally that sort of culture anyway, as mm. I see it. That, you know, the, the big unsung heroes in this, we know one ever mentions the mm. nurses. Mm. Can we just mention them for a sec? Yeah, so absolutely. every single time an Australian has an anaesthetic, there's an anaesthetic nurse. Every single time you do a surgery, there'd at least be one or two nurses with you. So there's almost always five people in the room. Wow, yes. Isn't that true? Um, yeah. And they are... They're the most wonderful people, but they just do this in out in out all day, and they get very good at it. Mm. And they they are it's their job. But they're very professional, mm. and I find um, um, if I'm not sure about something, we might think about. Um, um, uh, I had I had an example the other day where we had a lady who was a Muslim, and she needed to have a urinary catheter, mm. and there was no non English speaking issue too, and it would normally be the case that. Um, Male surgical assistant did it, but the anaesthetic nurse said, "No, why don't we? Why don't I do this one?" It was that it was that sort of yes patient advocacy? That's it was right. a perfect example of it. It's like, oh, thank you. Yeah, you do this. Yes, and it was just perfect. So that they're there, and people should know that mm. that every time you know they're trusting them, themselves to us. It's not just you and me, is it? There's this. There's a team. So I, I, I personally, every time, my anaesthetic personal experiences, I. I the thing I remember most is the anaesthetic nurse holding my hand as mm. I went to sleep, and it was just so wonderful. Mm. Um, back to what we were talking about, we were talking about, I guess, the this awareness. Um, I think that it, it's a tale, and if I, the next part of the tale was um, in the. Uh, I guess it's late 90s, in the 90s, um, awareness monitors, anesthetic depth of anesthesia monitors came onto the market. So these are people might have very well experienced that anesthetist or anesthetic nurse putting little sticky Was that an dots. Aussie invention? I don't think so. No, I don't know. If, there was if some, it was, I'm very guilty. landmark study that was Aussie. Ah, that's, what I'm, that's, that's exactly what I want to get to. So mm. when I was a young, doc, uh, young anesthetist, you're talking about the BOA study. So, so the, the, these things arrived on the scene and we all thought, well, I thought, great, problem solved. It's a monitor. It tells me the depth of anesthesia. It's its name, problem solved. Unfortunately, not so simple. Unlike the other monitors I talked about, the depth of anesthesia monitor doesn't actually measure how much anesthetic's in your brain. It's looking at some signals coming out of your brain and also out of your um, the, the, the muscles of the forehead too. It's comparing signals and it's also processing these signals. Now, I can't explain it to you. <laughs> I, I, I can use terms like it's a, 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 a statistical analysis to give you a probability state of being awake. <gasps> what does that mean? Mm. Oh, I don't really know. You get a number <laughs> and, and you get a number and, and they're designed to basically give you a number um, 
there's a bit of variation between brands, but work with me on, on the main brand called The Best. You get a number between yes, yeah. one and zero, uh, mm. 100 and zero. 100 is supposed to be fully awake. You want to be in that 40 to 60 range. So why isn't, isn't this, why are we talking about this still? Hasn't it solved the problem? The BOS study was an Australian study and it's um, a legendary uh, study uh, by some professors in Melbourne. I, I'd like to name um, my, Professor Miles and Leslie to, to acknowledge them. Um, and they looked at this monitor in about 1,200 patients with it and 1,200 patients without it, and they were using high-risk patients. 1,200? I think it was about 1,200 in each group. So a good it, number. It was a very good all-powered uh, study. I mean, all studies have problems, you know, but, mm. but the end result was that in the people who were being given an anesthetic titrated to that BIS, so they're using the BIS to guide them, they had, I think it was two cases of awareness, and in the group that didn't, I'm pretty sure it was 11. Mm. And that's statistically significant. So it, it was like, wow, this is this is great. Um, and I thought to myself, well, okay, they're going to mandate use of this monitor, right? How can you not? It should be used on, on everybody, particularly right, if I'm having a muscle accident. Yeah. Right? So referring back to our patients, I, I haven't used it on our lady, our first lady having the IVF. She's not got a muscle accident and I've got – it's a it, uh, it's a simple procedure. The second lady having a hysteroscopy, I probably wouldn't use it either. She's not going to get a muscle accent. I, I'm going to keep her adequately deep using using basically the right technique at the right doses. Oh, well, I always thought people knowing. with hysteroscopies always had muscle relaxa- relaxants. No hysteroscopy. Yeah. It, for, for for the surgical reason alone, no. Oh, it would right. only be if there was a patient reason okay. to do it. No. I've learned something today. There <laughs> might now. They might very well be ventilated. This is the mm. thing. A laryngeal mask, just as an aside, you might very well have an anaesthetist or the machine actually ventilating. Mm. But that's just because of the the, the, the drugs I've given have, have induced apnea, have stopped right. breathing. So yep. I'm just doing the breathing for you. Another but, Greek word. But they can start breathing if they want. I, I love it when they start breathing because <laughs> yeah. they can do it themselves. Um, but your, your, our third lady having the, the tummy uh, camera operation, the laparoscopy, she's paralysed. Mm. So she would have a bis. I would use a bis in her. Yeah, right. So the bis study, this one we're talking about, the BOS study came out, and and that's, and it, it answered that question. I mean, does does this monitor, um, had, sh- should you use this monitor and be guided by this monitor? Because the, the two questions about it were, so say you've got a patient who's who's got a, a bis of sixty to sixty five, should you give more anaesthetic? Well. Based on this sort of study, yeah, basically you should. You should you should look at the totality of it. Um, you don't sometimes just look at the number, you look at the trends, so it's a bit more complicated. But the, the corollary of that is what if you've got a patient whose bis category is uh, 33? Should I turn it down? Do I turn the anaesthetic down there? These were the sort of questions being asked. And, and the BIS, the BOS study, pardon me, sort of suggested to us, yeah, okay, use the BIS monitor to, to guide um, – However, a couple of other studies subsequently failed to reproduce it. Um, there are always differences about methodology, and I, I, I don't think we should get into it. But the bottom line is it never became mandated. It still isn't um, because that's, there's still ongoing controversy about just where, it, where, it, where, where, where its use is. I must say in my practice, I use it a lot. I would think about using it in every muscle relaxant patient I have uh, and sometimes even non-muscle relaxant patients. 
I think, and this is just me speaking, sorry, I've got no evidence for this, but I suspect that the, the uptake in Australia is, is, is higher than other places, and I particularly think the UK, and I've got a, a reason for that coming up. So that was the state of play. Um, and the other thing, sorry, before I mention it, before I leave, the, the other uh, staggering thing about that Be Aware study, it, it, they gave a, uh, an incidence of awareness at point. One to point two percent, so about one in one to two per thousand from memory. I think I think I'm trying I'm trying to get that right. It's quite high. It's staggeringly high. Now mm. remember they were using high risk patients. They were mm. they were targeting, mm. uh, um, uh, you know, not not a, that's not the totality of all operations. It was it was it was high risk. However, yeah, absolutely. Is that is that a, it's staggeringly high? So that really scared us. Mm. So we all started thinking about it. So you have to wonder whether the subsequent studies were actually being done in an environment where people more. More alert. Yeah. This, there's, there's lots. So the short answer to a question, mm-hmm. say Tanya, 85 yeah. has, has questioned here, can I wake up mid-operation, yes, yes or no? Yes, you can. Yes, yes you can. You there can. you go, Tanya. You can. Sorry, Tanya. Yeah. Short, short answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. Not good for short answers. But look, can I the, – the, Kate Collins' book is brilliant. Yeah. It's totally. a really fascinating book. Mm. I, I read it because you told me about it. Um, God, you read quickly. That was only a few weeks ago. Uh, supposed to be kind of good at that. Anyway, um, <laughs> look, it's it's fascinating. If, if anyone wants, if anyone's worried about that, about this process, I would say that don't read the book <laughs> before the surgery. It, 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 this is, can be very scary, and you can get find very scary examples out in the literature, and, and they're real examples of people who have been actually truly paralysed mm. and awake, mm. um, and it's horrific. We know that. At least fifty percent of those people go on to a significant psycholo- psychiatry, psychiatric, psychological um, uh, harm and issues. Um, post-traumatic stress disorder is, is, is the ultimate um, concern, and, and so forth. I mean, I think they actually lose a lot of patients to follow up, so it could even be worse. I mean, mm. people just don't want to talk about it, right? Yeah. Um, the thing is, though, I, I, I've scared people here. I'd like to, I'd like to try not to, because a couple of years ago, the British released what they call NAP5. So NAP is the National Audit Project. Now, the British do these brilliant audits of something going on in their health system and the number five was about awareness. Mm. And it's the biggest study by far. And anything I say now, we ask, because I'm, I'm going to refer to it. So the bottom line is there, um, and I think Australian practice is pretty similar to the truth. I think that they sort of came up with uh, one in, I'm going to say, 20,000 sort of baseline incidents. So a lot less than a lot less. Study. However, if you look at the incidents in people who've got muscle relaxants, it's way more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say one in about 6,000. Mm-hmm. And if you look at people who don't get muscle relaxants or it, it, it happens in other situations – I think it's an order of magnitude the other way. So I'm, I'm thinking it's about 150, 160,000. So I think that's a good news story. I hope people will, will, will be um, reassured by that. I mean, um, I think it's amazing that we can, we have anesthesia because without it, we wouldn't be able to do many things in medicine, would we? Well, the development of anesthesia has been hand in hand with the development of surgery because it was the, the need to do Surgical, surgical techniques in the first place. So initially it was just to actually provide without sensation, to actually provide some humanity really to yeah. surgery. But as soon as you could do it, surgeons would, of course, try and do more. Mm. And then the, then there's been just this constant development. Mm. So muscle relaxants overall have been wonderful, but they've allowed 
all of the laparoscopy, all of the non-invasive surgery, the difficult neurosurgery, the amazing cardiothoracic surgery, mm. uh, spinal uh, spinal surgery, all that is you couldn't do Thanks without. Thanks to the muscle relaxer. Absolutely. It's part, it's part of it. It's not just it's part of it. Yeah. Tanya I, also asked, um, why does she get super emotional after waking up from a general oh anesthetic? Oh, boy. Um, so the... I'm going to try and actually give you a short answer for once. How about we just say it's the propofol? <laughs> propofol is probably the main culprit here, um, okay. but it's not just the propofol. So if we go back to our our, our, poor, uh, our customers had our first um, first two operations, they basically had that midazolam, that relaxy happy drug that that can make you a bit disinhibited in of itself. Mm-hmm. The, the fentanyl also it's a narcotic; it can make you feel good, mm-hmm. but it, the propofol is is especially brilliant. So, so what does what does Tanya say? She feels up emotional. Yeah. Why do I get super emotional after waking up from yeah, a general? It's anesthetic? It's very common to see people wake up crying. Yeah, I've and noticed you that ask, too. yeah, and why, why are you crying? I'm just emotional. Is what they say. I mean, sh- I, you have to suspect that they were feeling tense and worried beforehand, right? They probably went to sleep thinking, yeah. I really want this to work. Oh, I'm what about my kids? You know, they're all those things we'd all we all worry about. Mm. And then it's that sense of relief. Mm. You don't have to you can get that with any time, right? Mm. Some some people get off an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. They're pretty emotional. Yeah. Um but propofol okay. is known to cause some into the postoperative period cause um some some behavioural that's interesting. Um, yeah, because a lot of my IVF patients will wake up crying, yeah. and I yeah. ask them, "Are you okay?" And they're like, "Oh, yeah, we've got ten eggs. I'm, I'm really happy." Yeah, and, then they're, they're and crying. they're crying. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> the the propofol when it when we started using it, there was a lot of concern about about the, some of the, the dreams. The dreams happen mm. um, with with they probably always uh, ha- always have. Dreams. But that was another question, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, my sister asked that question actually. Where are you, Sophie yeah, Andriatis? Have any patients had dreams, hallucinations, and are there any patterns? Okay. Easy. Dreams, yes. Um, around about a quarter, maybe a bit less of a patients. Quarter of, quarter of patients will dream with, with propofol. Wow. So that, that, that's um, when you're doing these sort of techniques I'm talking about for the first two, three patients. I don't, I don't warn, but I, I, as you go to sleep, I say, you know, have nice dreams. It's not a problem. Are they? They're usually either neutral or pleasant. Okay. I've never had anyone or heard of anyone have a nightmare. Right. Uh, I'm not a sleep guy, but I think that's a different. No, like I just probably shouldn't go there. I just. I, I, okay, so they're I, generally neutral yeah, or good dreams. Yeah, exactly. What um, we have to be careful about, though, is um, that those dreams. It's hard to know exactly. Mm. Were they under the anaesthetic or were they as you woke up, were they as you went to sleep and you remember them? So it's, it's hard to know. This is coming back to what you were saying about being careful what you say to people as you go to sleep. You know, mm. say nice things. And as you're waking up, say nice things. Mm. And as they're going into recovery, say nice things, be nice, mm. talk nicely. Say it's mm. okay, you're waking mm. up. Say it again and again because are they it, – it's not an instant reversal. People yes. move back up that spectrum, spectrum we talked about, three, two, one, over time. Yeah. And – Thus, that wake up is not instant, and you just a lot don't of that know. Could be happening in recovery. They yeah. could be having those dreams. This this also ties into that awareness stuff. It's, it's sometimes people wonder about whether uh, a memory of awareness might have actually been in as you're waking up in recovery. Mm. Um, so the the, the NAP five study was very good because they actually really teased it apart. They actually categorized yeah. everything, and yeah. and so um, I think that's a valid. Um, they they sorted that out. Um, the other thing was the other thing about propofol, though, got to mention. Mm. Um, one of the ladies, we had a question about 
a lady who woke up uh, very happy. Is that, yes, is that okay, one? yeah, let me find that one. I Hold think, on a I think second. We're, I think we're yes. in that territory. Yes. Oh, here we go. Alicia Humphreys, I recover well from general anesthetic of various types really well. One time I even went home from day surgery, swept the house like a mad woman <laughs> and made everyone lunch. It was on a I was on a high. Our uh -huh. stimulants forward slash adrenaline used to wake people up at, the, at that would explain this. Uh, my patients have reported bad reactions, nausea, et cetera, to anesthetics, wondering if it's different liver detox genetics. But yeah, she, she talks about Alicia, you can come to our house and clean our house. <laughs> After any operation, yes. Yeah, so tell us uh, more about that. I think that the the so she's had had day surgery, so it's probably relatively minor surgery. So something like what our first two ladies have had. She's hopefully got very little in the way of post op pain. I think once again we're probably seeing um, the main culprit here is, is the propofol again. Uh, oh, this is this is euphoria. This is propofol euphoria. Short oh. uh, answer, Alicia. No stimulants. Um, Adrenaline is used in in in, uh, in small amounts and in mixtures in local anaesthetics. Uh, it, it, it's also a resuscitation drug, but no, it's not used as a stimulant, and no stimulants in of themselves are not used. Remember, I said that you don't have to give someone something, give someone something to make the anaesthetic go away. It goes away as of itself. Mm. The propofol um, doesn't need to be made to go away by stimulant, but it's it, it's one of the innate properties of propofol is, is that it. it um, it causes it, it about, oh, I think it's around about half patients who are just given a light propofol-based anesthetic uh, will have a euphoric sort of sense of it. Okay. So it ties in with how that how people wake up. It's kind of a nice problem that you think. You think it's good, but it's actually, there's some problems. Mm. So I think um, the lady here mentioned that she's she's gone home and she's, well, she's cleaned and cooked, right? Yeah. Uh, Made everyone I lunch mean, like yeah, a mad woman. I mean, lovely, but... After surgery, you kind of want to relax and mm. take it easy. Because you could, you know, bust those stitches. Yeah, or, yep. yeah exactly. <laughs> but do you know what scares me the most about about this story is that, and this is something I'm very careful with, mm. um, I'm worried about how people might behave mm -hmm. after under mm. the influence of these drugs. Mm. Um, particularly, I'm worried about their mobile phone. Oh, yeah. So if someone wakes up and they're feeling great, sure, you want to get on your phone. Yeah. They want to call mum or hubby and say, you know, all's well, yeah. good, come pick me up at three. That's fine. But then, oh, Facebook. Oh. Oh, hang on. So wonder, if, wonder if yeah. those shoes are on sale. Really? Uh, well, this is very interesting. You, you, one of the pieces of a standard advice we're giving now um, for people who have had an anaesthetic and they're going to go home the day, same day as, you know, you need someone to care for you and take you home. Mm. You can't drive. You can't do heavy machinery. You can't do anything dangerous. Don't sign documents. But I'm also telling people, maybe think about. Switch off your mobile phone. Yeah. Give, wow. it, give it to mum. Yeah. Give it to your hubby. Good point. If there's a smart kid out there, there's a market for them to develop an app. <laughs> your post-anesthetic phone app, you put it in, you know, post-anesthesia mode, it says do not do these things for 12 hours or wow. whatever. Uh, because in actual fact, I see it all the time. And the recovery staff, who the, the nurse is looking after you when you wake up, and the mm. day surgery staff, uh, mm. they're onto it. They actually, uh, I've seen all the time that they take the phone off and say, look, you know, call that, but let's have a rest, you know, go to sleep, take it easy because – um, yeah, it's a it's it worries us a lot, and that's that, propofol, usually. Yeah, it's based. Propofol would be the main culprit here. Um, okay. There, are, uh, to, to try and give a complete answer, the the other drugs can contribute, and mm. also um, 
A lot of us, a lot of anesthetics are using some anti-vomiting drug uh, steroids, uh, de- uh, dexamethasone, which which can cause to, some euphoria too. Um, to Christy McIntyre's question, I think question, the propofol is the main one here. Yeah, Christy McIntyre asks you, why do some people suffer extreme nausea when they wake up? Oh, look, this is nausea and vomiting is the one of the biggest, if not the biggest, problem in, right. our, in our patients, isn't it? We we have um, we know that if you um, are at risk for it. And you have the wrong procedure that your your chances of, of getting it is is well over 50, 60, 70 percent. So why does it happen? Um, there are risk factors. So what we know, what what, what we'll ask about. This is what we some of the things we're, lo- we're learning about you when we talk we talk before surgery. We're looking for these risk factors. So for these these ladies, we've talked about having this surgery. I, I want all three of these ladies to go home. So post op nausea vomiting is a very major part of what I'm doing. The risk factors I'm really focusing on are the patient ones, and that are the, being female, being is, is higher risk than being male. Mm. Uh, How about being overweight? Uh, it is not in of itself such mm-hmm. a big risk factor. However, it ties in with what you're having. So we'll get back uh, we'll, to yeah, the exactly. Weight people yeah. might need. Uh, more anesthesia, there might be more analgesia, their surgery might be more difficult, might be longer. So it starts to become complicated. Yeah. But the, the core risk factors, as I said, being female, if you've got a past history of nausea and vomiting, you really want to tell your anesthetist because that's all, you know, that's a major mm. fact. Motion sickness is a great one. So if you if you're the some people can read in a car, read a book, some people just know they can't. Tell me if you're motion sickness. And lastly, unfortunately, if you're a smoker, you actually get less. <laughs> So get, don't start smoking. Less, don't right. start smoking. I'm not saying that, but but if, so if we look at our our um, no, but sorry, before I go on, so that's the patient factors. But mm. then we know about surgery. Some surgeries are worse. Mm. Laparoscopy is a bad one. All right. Intraabdominal surgery, gallbladder, um, and surgery with duration. So if you uh, example, if you're having a knee arthroscopy, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, not that bad. If you're having a knee replacement mm. or a knee fracture repaired. In of itself, longer, harder, more pain relief, more more anesthesia, so more more risk. Um, so if we look at back at our our, our example patients, our, our second patient is is mm, she's not terribly high risk because uh, or if she was well, DNC, yeah. I mean, I, I told you the first time I, I, I'd use volatile, I keep risk volatile, but if she was actually high risk, what I would do is not use that volatile. So mm. the other other risks are that what we anesthetists do. So using volatiles, the gases. Is a high make, makes is a risk using laughing gas, the nitrous oxide. Right, but instead of using those, if we use propofol to keep you asleep, not only do we take away that the risk that the gas has had, but we actually get a benefit. Propofol is in, 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 is in of itself an anti-vomiting drug. Oh right, yeah. God, propofol is amazing. Oh, it's, it's not perfect. Very, Trust well, me, it's well, not it's, perfect. Yeah, but it's um. So it's yeah, back back to <laughs> our, our customers. Our third lady having mm. the laparoscopy. I'm already at two risk factors automatically. Imagine, if, imagine she told me that she she vomited last time and she doesn't like reading in cars. So mm. I'm at multiple model risk factors. So to answer our, our, our question, I, it's happening because um, of the direct action of the drugs, particularly the volatile anesthetics. We know they work at multiple receptor sites in the brain and one of them, unfortunately, is probably this 5-HT3, uh, which uh, can, can lead to the, the brain vomiting center being activated. Uh, so we've got we've got anti-vomiting drugs. So mm. what you do is you, you you stratify people into into 
what you think their risk level is, and you automatically increase the number of anti-vomiting drugs you give, and you automatically start thinking about avoiding things which are uh, increasing the risk, such so as avoiding the volatile anaesthetics or, or um, in an extreme case, you could even talk about avoiding a general anaesthetic altogether, mm. um, doing a, a local or a regional anaesthetic. So mm. there, there are so other options. It's a big problem, the nausea of vomiting afterwards, huh? It almost always comes in as one of the, the biggest um, uh, um, complaints in terms of quality of services. It, it, it's associated with morbidity. It's horrible. It mm. delays people going home. It, it, it delays establishing of eating and drinking. And, 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 so it's and, a serious, and, and, we should take it oh, seriously very, when people have so. a day of a history of nausea, vomiting with an anaesthetic. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Um, Sule Lee, Lim, Sule mm. Lim. She's written, um, why do they offer biscuits when you wake up but I just throw them back up? I'm party puppy dog and will <laughs> eat when there's food in front of me. So I think, Suli, we've answered maybe your question, but maybe, uh, yeah, people are fed too quickly perhaps. I think. And biscuits, yeah, some of those biscuits are pretty yummy. I don't know, but when you're waking up, right, you're starving, right? Particularly you fasted, probably, and we fasted you beforehand for various reasons and it's very common for people who to, to feel quite hungry, but yeah, you do want to you do want to ease into it. Um, I would never argue with the anaesthetic the recovery nurses who who say no, it's too early. You know, if someone says you know they're hungry, they, they'll generally start you know with ice and then water, icy poles. Oh yes, those, ice. progress yep. your way up. But yeah, don't don't go straight for the Big Mac. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Tash, I have a question for Dr. Cameron, please. Mm-hmm. How safe is it to expose your body to anesthesia drugs on a regular basis and what effect Ooh. do they have on the body long term? Mm-hmm. Also, how long does it take for anesthetic drugs to work their way out of your body after surgery? For context, I have a cystoscopy and Botox injections mm-hmm. into my bladder every five months to help with my interstitial cystitis symptoms, uh, which is a common mm-hmm. cause of pelvic pain but underdiagnosed, I feel, in women. Uh, um, she writes, uh, I have... I always have this done under a general anaesthetic mm-hmm. because they don't have the right equipment at my public hospital to do it awake or under a lighter sedation. I'm probably only under for 30 to 40 minutes, so it's a relatively mm-hmm. short GA, but still I wonder, is it safe for me to have a general anaesthetic every five months? And what effect is it having on my body that I may not be aware of? Thanks mm-hmm. so much for offering us the opportunity to ask mm-hmm. questions. You are so welcome. Oh, and I've met uh, some fantastic anaesthetists, she writes, <laughs> in all of my medical journeys, and I am super grateful for the essential part they play in my care. Oh, that's good. Nice to hear. Thank you. Um, sorry, I believe the good lady said it was every five months she has yes. to have the procedure? Yes. Okay. So general anaesthetic every five months. It's a general anaesthetic every five months for a relatively short procedure. It's sort of similar to our hysteroscopy, isn't it? Probably, as you said, about half an hour. Um, huge question. Um, the short answer is I think it's okay. And why do I think it's okay? Um, okay. Um, what we, 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 we have no evidence. We don't know that there is um, significant harm from anesthetics for short duration. When you start to try and tease out what happens when people get multiple oper- anesthetics, multiple operations and long durations, you, it gets complicated because it's hard to work out what the problems, uh, what you're measuring because they're having surgery for a reason mm. and they're having, they've got problems for a reason. Um, but in particularly the elderly population, for instance, where people are more susceptible to, you, you might be able to, you, you'd speculate, you'd see the effects more clearly. Yes, you, you do see. 
uh, this, this, there's this phenomenon called post-operative cognitive deficiency, POCD. And yeah, absolutely. Our repeated surgery and anesthesia is associated with, with this. It's, it's a measurable reduction in um, mental powers, mental t testing powers, ability uh, to do, te do tests and so forth. But if we go back to Caroline, she's, um, she's younger and she's having maybe five months. So five months is a reasonably long, I would have thought, interval. Um, part of the question was asked was about how long they hang around. Mm. So and I, I think yeah, Marsha Chris Marsha Chris has also asked this question yeah. about leaving the body and, and how long. That's right. This is this is um often confusing and, and you do see in the in the in the popular media um stories about uh how long anesthetic can hang around. It, it, it's valid because remember I said the propofol goes away of itself mm -hmm. and I think um, we talk about that, that that drug first. The the reason you wake up is because it it moves out of your brain and into your other tissues, and that happens over over minutes. So we talk about half lives, and we talk about this half life of distribution. So it distributes from your brain to your body over about uh, a couple of minutes, sort of six each minutes. But it actually takes the body many many hours to actually eliminate it. So does it hang around for a couple of days? Yeah, absolutely. You, you can measure it in urine and, 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 and find blood tests for, for, for many days. When we talk about, yeah. and this might be a good point to bring up now, the process of elimination, so mm. the body, sure. how do we eliminate things? So we've yep. got poo, we can pee things mm. out, we can sweat things mm -hmm. out, we can breathe things mm -hmm. out. Yeah. So how else can we get rid of things? Liver, obviously, yeah, that's part of that's part of the gut and poo, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. The most, the most of the uh, most of the intravenous anaesthetics uh, are eliminated by um, metabolism in the liver, mm -hmm. and then uh, usually what the liver does, it tries to change it, to change the shape of the molecule to make it inactive. So it it, it changes it, and then mm. it's either eliminated you know, through your, through your um, gastrointestinal tract or it goes to the, the kidneys mm. and you, you weed out. So basically, phase one, phase two. Yeah, the, yeah. Liver, the liver does um, mm. the work. Um, the volatile anaesthetics are largely breathed out. Mm -hmm. However, there is some metabolism and, and depending on which one you're talking about, you, know, you'll, you won't pass your exam unless you can tell them about <laughs> the metabolism uh, and the problems that that, that, that can lead to. Um so yeah, if you if you if you if you're talking about how long you can be affected by anaesthetic, this is why we sort of give that blanket advice not to do anything bad for twenty four hours, not to do anything dangerous for twenty four hours. I mean, um, which includes it's, not working, yeah, not, not signing documents, documents, buying a house, parachute jumping. <laughs> Uh, don't, don't don't make the proposal or accept the proposal. <laughs> That's and if you were going to have repeated anaesthetics within 24 hours, so if you're going to come back for three anaesthetics in three days, oh, yeah, I, I'd really have to start thinking about that. But uh, our, our lady here is having five months, so I think that's a pretty, pretty long time. I think the other reason this question might be, be being asked is it was very big news a few years ago when the American drug agency, excuse me, um, they put out a warning. So they have these things called black box, black label warnings, where they basically sort of stamp a big warning on, a, on an area or a product or a service or whatever it is. And they basically came out with something which said that um, 
I'm pretty sure it was it was repeated long term exposure to anesthetics can lead to um, I, I'm, I'm sorry don't don't quote me on this but it was either it was either um, developmental concern in in or fetal um, developmental concerns, something, something like that. Pardon me, I just can't remember the exact mm. details. But and I, I do seem to recall it was in animals. They done this. They done this study in an in animal in an animal model, and they detected microscopic and and uh, uh, bi- biochemical changes, mm. which were deleterious. So the FDA came out, and it was a bit of a concern at the time. I tell you, because all of a sudden we're wondering, are anaesthetics more like cigarettes? Mm. Than they are like alcohol. Mm. I like to reassure people. One particular study subsequently done to that, I personally found affected my practice was that they they, they took advantage of of a lovely little um, loophole with with children. So the major concern is in children because they're the developing brains, right? If, if a group of children need to have hernia repairs, that's a sort of a, a lump in the side of their tummy where the the, the, the wall's not quite right, and the the, the the tummy contents can come out. So very not not a rare operation at all, not a major operation, but it's, it's an operation. Mm. And the great thing from this study's point of view is you can do that study, sorry, you can do that operation under a general anaesthetic or you can do a regional anaesthetic. So you can give them effectively what similar similar what mum's having an epidural, um, probably a spinal type anaesthetic. So you basically make them completely numb. They're babies. They're just sucking on a dummy. They've got no idea what's going on. They can't feel <laughs> a thing. They so have cute. the operation. It's actually amazing. When I, I, I got to watch that as part of the training. Wow. It's, it's, it's breathtaking how clever it is. But the whole point is you've got these two groups and, and the only difference is them is the anaesthetic, right? It's controlling for everything else. And the question is how do they develop? Is there a developmental difference? And thanks be to God, there isn't. <laughs> the result came back. Uh, I think it was the follow-up for a few years and they were looking at, 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 at developmental um, factors, milestones and so forth, and there was no difference. And that um, I remember being told that at, 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 a, at a little conference and, and, and you know, this isn't – I shouldn't take credit for this analogy. The guy, the, guy, the guy said, look, I think this means that we can refer to the, that F, FDA warning and we can refer back to it and say, look, yeah, repeated long-term exposure – of course, it might be a problem, but that's the case with so many things, mm. isn't that the case like with X-rays, alcohol? X-rays, X-ray, yeah. It's but anaesthetics aren't. And you're going to think twice about doing an operation, yeah, or you yeah. should be thinking twice that's about right. an X-ray. So cigarettes are bad at any dose. There's no such thing as a safe dose. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we all go drinking. Yeah. Every five months, uh, our lady here can go out and party really hard. Yeah. It's. I think. I think we're <laughs> in a similar. Liver's working well. Similar concept. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So yeah, the answer is just limit. Do, do what you're doing. She, she said she's uh, limiting their short procedures. Um, I, I just personally say, look, I, I, I do think she's. Uh, she said that the, the facility can't do under under local, but there's a lot of a lot of procedures. You know, you might just want to check if, if you do have to have repeat procedures. Could they be done without the anaesthetic? Is, mm. is actually an option. And I would I would actually also say whenever, whenever um, uh, people are having multiple procedures, what, keep a diary. Yeah. Um, Every time you, you get it, you know, you're going to get a, your drugs mm. and hopefully you're getting the same anaesthetist as well as the same mm. surgeon so you actually can make a relationship. Yep. But if not, keep a little diary. Why don't you write down what you got yeah. and how it worked. Yeah. And you, next time you can give it to the anaesthetist and they can sort of – they're not going to copy it. Um, but, you know, it, it's a guide and you can sort of talk That's about it. That's a really it. good point because a lot of IVF patients have repeated mm. IVF procedures. So over a year 
um, they might have, I don't know, four or five egg collections. So that's a very, very good point. Mm. I wanted to, my last question to you mm-hmm. was uh, about kids. So you, right. when, oh, I, when kids. I had a chat to you a few weeks ago, you said mm-hmm. that kids ask great questions about anaesthetic. Can you they do. give us some examples? Um, full disclosure, I'm not a paediatric anaesthetist, uh, but I do regularly anaesthetise kids and uh, so when I say not pediatric anaesthetist, I don't work at pediatric anaesthetist hospitals like the, the – But you work with kids. Oh, absolutely. It's part yep. of the training and, and yep. regularly. Um, it, 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 children um, – it's not so much the – it's the adolescence. You know, okay. you get a scared teenager, young teenager um, having an operation and they, they're, they're completely um, – they have no social res, uh, restraint, do they? they they'll they ask what, what's ever in their head. What's the funniest question? Oh, I don't know. It's funny. But basically the, the, the scenario is often it's their first time. Yep. Big brother or big sister have had it. And they've told them some horror stories. <laughs> so they, they, they turn up and, and, and they're, they're often levitating with fear. And they ask things uh, like, will I die? Do I die? Um, no, of course. No, no. Um, you know, even, even those, the, the, those little ECG dots mm. you put on, the little monitoring dots across the chest. I've seen... Uh, and a, 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 a young a young person basically be very concerned that, that meant they were going to get the shocky thing, you know, the oh, defibrillator. Right. Yes. No, it's just <laughs> a little monitoring thing. You're not going to be defibrillated. The heart will beat by itself. Not a problem. Um, so I've sort of yeah. They 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 also the great thing about the adolescence is they don't let you off the hook. Right. You can't just give so them a platitude. Oh, mm. absolutely. I, I, um, cut me off if you want, but I, no, I, I, for, for years I. I I've tried to use, try to come up with sort of ways to explain it. And I basically often refer to the city analogy. So I talk about most of us have flown over a city at night, you know, even Sydney or, or if you've flown over Tokyo, one of those metropolises, it's just this endless mass of mm. lights and moving. Mm. And I, that's like the brain in the central cord. You've got this, wow, that's this a cool com- incredible little complex system and, you, and, and if the little cars and moving everywhere, that's the nerve signals going everywhere. And all, and I mean, and you've even got this big highway coming into it mm. called the pain highway. That's mm. that's, what, that's and we got the surgeries down there. All anaesthetics is doing is just putting up lots of roadblocks. They're just reversible roadblocks. We're not blowing up the city. We're not digging up the roads. <laughs> We're not blowing the cars up. It's just a lot of reverse roadblocks, and they'll just block that that traffic for, uh, for what we want. Uh, we can put in some local anaesthetic, which will block that pain highway. Um, and at the end of it, all you have to do is actually do nothing and those roadblocks often go away by themselves. That's a great analogy. That's, and you can extend the analogy until it, fall, until you, until it fails, of course. Anesthesia is, anesthesia is one great big city. I think of it that way. Oh, well, I hope, I hope it helps them. But um, honestly, usually what helps more is just the nurse. The, n- <laughs> the, nurse. the nurse. You'll be right. The, the tre- Shout out to mom. all the nurses. How, I, I should say a specific a special hello to certain nurses. They know who they are, but if I get if I miss any, I'll be in trouble. <laughs> so I might just say thank you to all of them. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Um, any last uh, comments about anaesthesia before I ask some getting to know you, Dr. Cameron? Questions? Oh, okay. Um, look, it's a, it's it, it's a great um, it's a great um, cha- uh, privilege, really, to be, to do it. I, I, I'm I'm always amazed. I mean, we're part of the anaesthetic surgical complex. We're a team. You know, we're basically given uh, control and lack of control is a huge thing. So people give us control of their body and 
you know, I think in this book by um, by um, uh, Kate Cole Adams, you know, she's I, 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 please forgive me if I get it wrong, but I, I think she refers to the fact you, you you're, you're given control of their their past, their, their present, and their future as well. Mm. So it's an enormous privilege, and and I I think we all acknowledge that. Um, it's it's an enormous trust, and we as a profession, I really think we we really really try and live up to that. Um, I think that if I could just say one thing which might help our listeners, you know, we're, we're, we're usually not asked as many questions as I think we you probably should. Um, ask, ask more questions. Okay. Um, I, I'm yeah, I always think happy to be Yeah, I think after this podcast people would, yeah. would uh, probably be open to that because, wow. Before you have a procedure with um, you know, the anesthetist, will we'll, we'll usually be very happy. They usually want to chat mm. um, and they're happy to tell you what they're going to do. They're happy to talk about what your concerns are and uh, it, it's – a really important part of our job mm. um, and I don't think it happens enough and I think a lot of people probably want to ask stuff mm. but they sort of maybe get embarrassed or maybe just don't know what to ask. Yeah, sometimes you could just ask the question, is there anything I should ask? I mean, yeah. Um, and we can talk to about, you know, what, what, what's going to happen and I can just, we, we can just talk about what we would expect to happen and that might, mm. that might, le- that might lead to mm. you asking some questions. I'll ask one last question. Please do. The risk of dying from an anaesthetic. Ah. <laughs> we haven't talked about that one. No, no. Give me a number. What do you quote? Um, what, what would you quote in an exam? I would say uh, approximately one in four, uh, 40,000. Mm-hmm. And I would refer to um, the Australian uh, special committee that investigates deaths under anaesthesia. It's a standing committee that has looked at this continuously for decades and they just released a report recently and I, that's where that number comes from. I think that's right, but um, they, they break it down. Um, so I think that, that that number is sort of a totality number. One in 40,000. One in 40. But it, um, if, that's, that's really just looking at the anaesthetic, pardon me, the anaesthetic factors alone. Mm. I think if you actually look at anaesthetic and surgery together, the totality is a real Real, yes. um, it, it's actually about one in twenty or three, one in twenty thousand or so. Okay, um, but it's very variable. It depends very much on on what patient group you're looking at. Mm. You know, high risk patients, high risk patients, emergency surgery, yeah, not emergency. It, there's country, a, a crucial city, yeah, after hours in hours yep. experience of anesthesia and surgeon. These are so, but it's a blanket thing. number. But can I tell you a funny story? I, yeah, I had to look. Me. I had to look at the this concept of risk. A couple of years ago, because we were we were putting together patient information, and and, um, and what does that mean? One in uh, forty thousand, or whatever it is. Um, so there's this concept out there called the micromort. Have you ever heard of it? I'd never no. heard. I'd never heard of this. Micromort. Thing. Micromort. So micromort is basically a mort is death. So yes. Micromort is that's a, Latin. Oh, not that's Greek. not Greek. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say something funny in Greek right now, but. I so a, a micromort is this, this, this measure that statisticians have come up with, which is a, a one in a millionth, one in a million chance of dying or something. Micro million. Mm. Is that correct? Micro, yes, it's small. There you go. Yeah. One in a million. So ha, if you do an activity that's got a one in a million chance of dying, you've got one of these micromorts. And then you can compare different activities and um, it, it gets a bit silly pretty fast. But, you know, if you look at um, – Skydiving and uh, uh, base jumping is way more risky than skydiving. And um, uh, what else? Scuba diving is pretty bad. Um, driving a car 
is the example we use to compare. So if, if, if you look at the numbers for driving a car and you calculate how many kilometres you've got to drive to get a similar risk to that anaesthetic death, it, it's in the order of eight ten thousand 10,000 kilometres. Oh. So, you know, a year's driving. So yeah, right. It's not – so it's comparable. But it's even better actually because it's still scary. It is, but still, it's even better because the biggest risk apparently. Oh, sorry. Apparently, when you're driving a car, one of the biggest things is speed, right? So as soon as yeah. you're going up speed, the risk goes up. Yeah. So if you double your, sorry, if you go up by four, five kilometers an hour, your your risk, your car risk goes up. And so you only have to be driving at seventy or eighty kilometers an hour to bring your, to bring your number of kilometers you've got to do to sort of be equivalent to to what we're talking about with anaesthetic level type is to, to find in a couple of thousand kilometres, so which is easily, a, you know, a drive from, what, Sydney to, what, Sydney to Perth? That must be. No idea. That's more than that. That's way more than that. I and mean, Sydney, Melbourne is almost a thousand. So it, it, it starts to put it in context, I think. Okay. Yeah, um, context is always a good thing. Yeah. It's, it, you don't have an anaesthetic without a reason. Mm. You don't have it without the, the, the right facilities and, and people being in place. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you shouldn't avoid surgery and anesthesia just because you're concerned about that. I mean, have a chat to us. Yeah, hope that helps. Oh, <laughs> I've learned immense amounts of information from you today. Um, okay, getting to know you. So mm-hmm. which people in your life, Cameron, have been your biggest inspirations? Okay, I'm going to stick, of course, to this world, apart from apart from the, 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 the people you meet as a child. I, I um, was incredibly privileged with – as all oh, I suspect of us young trainers were with the, the places we went, the hospitals in Sydney and around we went to and the, and the people who led us into their their world and showed us their practice. Um, I'm probably not going to name names, but but the, you know, the, 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 the senior anaesthetists at St Vincent's and at Concord and at Liverpool and Canterbury and Canberra particularly, those all, uh, uh, and, and also the, the team at Careflight, um, mm. I particularly like to mention those mm. because they – they displayed just such um, generosity of they, they give, give their knowledge freely. There's no, um, it's, it's what the profession does. You, you get taught by the best. So I'm no now. I realise now only that I'm how blessed I was. You, you know, often don't appreciate it at the time, do you? When you mm. when you because you did your, your training um, at St Vincent's. You uh, mentioned. No, it was St Vincent's was, um, well, was one of them was, anyway. Was, was as a med early training, medical students yeah. and other training, but, but most of my anaesthetic training was was either through the systems of Concord or Liverpool hospitals. Yes. But you get you get sent around, yeah, so I like think I visited yeah. just about every hospital south south of the bridge. Okay. Um, and into southern New South Wales, yeah. But you have a <laughs> lot. Of, it sounds like a lot of people inspired you. A lot. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd hate to miss a name. Um, I'd Sounds like the name. Grammy, you know, the Academy Awards <laughs> no, when people miss names. No, I don't want to be like that. <laughs> I'd like to thank my mum. No. <laughs> favourite books. I can see you've got lots of books here. Well, What's a favourite book that you can share with us? A favourite book. I'm guilty of always reading too many books at once. Um, my current guilty pleasure is the Rivers of London series. Have, have, mm. have you heard of it? No. Um, it's a series-based uh, they're, they're science fiction, really, but they're light science fiction. They're based in London, and it's effectively modern English policing, very stodgy, <laughs> meets magic. Oh wow! So there's magic is real, and the criminals are doing it, and the police have to deal with it, and some of the police learn it, and so it's it's described as Harry Potter meets. I was going to um, say there's a bit of Harry Potter in there. Yeah, it's like Harry Potter meets the Bill. Wow! <laughs> it's, it, and, is uh, it a is it a new series of books or? Couple of years, okay. but there's one just been released, so um, I actually picked it up 
today, which is why it's in my head, I suppose. I, Great. I, I picked it up um, this morning. So, yeah, Excellent. good fun. Um, and songs that make you happy. Oh, boy, I always listen to the 70s, 80s and 90s Spotify playlists. Were you, were you playing music when I visited you and, and the Jorgensen's operating? Were you playing music yeah, that day? Yeah, the anaesthetist is usually responsible for the yes. music. Because what, what music may have you been playing well, that day? Well, Anastasia would be. Uh, yeah, <laughs> she, she, she's young and very, uh, and very techno. Ne- techno. So we tend towards the 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 nineties and the oh, okay the uh, noughties yeah. and beyond. And then then um, John and I like to influence and bring it back into the seventies, eighties. <laughs> it real. Um, it's funny. You, you know, you're playing the right music when when the theatre's happy. Yes. And, uh, if you're playing. Particularly, it's actually been shown, if you're playing wrong music, particularly the surgeon is the important one to look at because they're the one who, you mustn't distract them. Mm. So it's, it's best when the nurses are happy, everyone's happy and the surgeon's concentrating. That's when you've got it right. You right know volume, what I'm right thinking though? Yeah? Maybe we should be playing the music the patient wants because what if they're awake, they're aware? Yeah, it's should good, we be playing that point. music? Yeah, well, I actually. There's Spotify for, for sedations, we actually do um, we mm. have headphones and mm. some patients want to play certain things. Yeah. yeah. I've seen, seen that, yeah. Yeah, no, good point. Your dream collaboration? Uh, if you tell me that there's a job for me at NASA or SpaceX, oh, I'm gone. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I know. God, yeah. NASA. Have you visited Cape Canaveral? No, I haven't. Yeah, it's that's on one of my dreams list. as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. But you know, I don't think they need a gynecologist in space, though. Well, they don't need me either, but, you know, <laughs> I'm happy to go and sweep the floors. <laughs> and my last question yeah. is, top tips for being a kick-ass anaesthetist? Oh, okay, well. I, 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 I try to be a exact middle of the road, Denise, so I don't want to be a kick-ass Denise. No, we won't there, there are others who are, who are there. I might actually work with some of them. Some of them. Um, I, I, think, I think you need to be, to be, you have to love it, don't you? You have to love our, our we're, we're doctors, we're not, it's not a trade, it's not a job. You've got to, it's a lifetime, it's a dedication, it's a, um, mm. it's, it's a vocation, isn't it? You, yeah. we, we dedicate ourselves to it. You Life's purpose. Yeah. You have to love it and you have to get satisfaction from doing it. Um, and it, sometimes it's, it's you know, there's some, you have hard days and you have, you have good days, but, you, you know, I think that to me is the core of it. I, I've said um, the day I stop enjoying it is the day I'm stopped doing it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to you know, let, let myself go, go down there. So that, that would be my major answer. I think your psychology is really important too, um, if I may say, I, you know, in all of our jobs, surgeons and GPs, whatever, you, you have to be the right sort of person originally. Um, anaesthetists mm. need to be, there's a certain, there's a certain type, you know, there's a certain personality type. I mean, they're, they're, you've got to be calm. You've yes. You've got to be, mm. um, I'd like to say humble, but some of the if any of the nurses are listening to this, they'll, they'll be laughing. Um, <laughs> you, you, but, you know, you, you, you can't be, um, you've got to be a team player. You've got to be respect that you're going to be, uh, you're a functionary. You're part of a a system which delivers an outcome, but you're not the, you're not the the prime mover. You're not the surgeon. You're not the the GP. Um, That's my answer. I mean, I'm, I'm always very, very happy when I see anesthetists around. So, you know, just as you mentioned that, Mm. that anesthetist that came into the room that you thought should have been wearing a cape. Mm, Exactly. That's kind of how I see you guys. So thank you very much for chatting today, Cameron. Dr. Tash, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Dr. Cameron Hunt. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel if you haven't already. Hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. 
Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people I can interview, or books for us to read. Until next time, stay fantabulous.